and there was no infrastructure for the automobile. And somehow, as a society, we figured it out. I know that's a horrible answer because there's no nothing to stand on technically there, but it's just a faith in the in our humanness to figure those problems out for the greater good of society. And we tend to do that. Yeah, you know, we tend to do that. Welcome to the future of a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. Welcome. In this episode of The Future Of, we're focusing on the future of gas stations. And we're joined by Scott Erickson, CTO at Harbor Foods Group. In addition to the conversation with Scott Erickson on today's episode, we asked two additional experts, Tammy Klein, founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies, and Jeff Leonard, VP at Strategic Industry Initiatives from the National Association of Convenience Stores, to provide their insights on the future of gas stations. So to kick off, Scott, can you share more about your background and the the relevance to the topic of today? Oh, sure. And thank you, Jeff, for having me as part of this. Very appreciate the offer to talk a little bit about our industry and the future of it. So I am a fourth-generation family member of a family business that started in 1923. My great-grandfather immigrated from Sweden and worked his way across the United States from Ellis Island over to a little town called Aberdeen, Washington, and started distributing food, just milk, eggs, and cheese at the time, to all the local businesses in the community that needed that food supply. Well... You know, fast forward about almost 100 years, our 100-year anniversary is coming up next year, and we are now a company called Harbor Foods Group. We are now over $1.2 billion in revenue, and through that growth from my great-grandfather in a horse-drawn carriage to now we have 850-plus team members, we service Washington, Oregon, Northern California, Idaho, Alaska, And one of our primary customers is the convenience store market, which in our society today is the vast majority of the gas pumps that are out there in the marketplace. And so throughout my career in the family business, which is spanning 36 plus years now, I've had the opportunity to work in about every aspect of the business, from sweeping floors, loading trucks, filling orders, delivering some sales work, finance work, all the way up to the C-suite positions I've been in the last 20 years. I've had a great opportunity to learn the market, learn about our customers, been part of an integral foundational piece, I, I believe, of serving the entrepreneurs in our market that start these gas stations and, and what we call convenience stores today and learn their challenges and their struggles and their successes and see where where some operators have been very successful, where other operators have maybe struggled. It's been a great picture of the industry. And, you know, I'm excited to bring some of that knowledge and experience to this conversation because I really feel like there's an opportunity going forward for this convenience store, grocery, small grocer, corner grocer, whatever moniker we want to put on it, for that to continue to evolve and change over time into the future. Awesome. Excited to hear from you. To start off, I think it would be good for our guests. You know, everyone has has this experience of visiting gas stations. You know, they're almost at like every corner and there's so many of them. 
I think I, I read uh, around 150,000 in the U.S., of which most of those are gas stations. These convenience stores are, are like around 80%, I think I read, were, were gas stations. And then obviously probably if we extrapolate maybe millions like around the world, like, you know, what is the future of gas stations? Before we get there, I think it'd be good to start with a little bit of the 101. You know, talk us through a little bit more about the current convenience store and gas station today, like the, some of the, the, like how that business actually works. Give us just a little bit of insight so we can kind of baseline before we talk about the future and, and think about how things are going to change. Yeah. Yeah. I think today's convenience store and gas station business has actually changed over the years quite a bit in and of itself and, and had to evolve. Currently, the, most of the convenience stores, you know, a typical convenience store will make a little bit of margin on their gas sales. And the, and the gas is, is really a pull to the customer base, I think, to visit the location. There are corner grocers without gas that do quite well of embedding themselves in their communities and marketing themselves that way. So, you know, but those ones with gas, they are kind of relying on that traffic to help get the in-store sales. You know, some of the challenges that the convenience store faces today that has gas pumps is, for example, with the pay at the pump, which has been around for decades, but that still was something that was relatively new and introduced when I was first starting in the business. And that was one of the things that was a concern at the time for convenience stores because foot traffic wouldn't be forced into the store to complete the transaction. And convenience stores rely a lot on impulse sales of that person coming into the store. So when the pay at the pump came in, you know, 40% of the people decided not to visit the store anymore. So that was a huge thing that the convenience stores had to adapt to. One of the things they did was to they tried to market more programs in their store to draw that foot traffic in. You know, they sell premium coffee programs. A lot of them are bringing in grab-and-go type food offerings. You know, they're doing things like reinventing their store to improve the lighting, improve the cleanliness, realizing that their customer no longer has to make that journey into the store. They're doing all they can to pull the customer back into the store. Now, convenience stores are still strong outlets for some products that do pull people in. You know, you have the tobacco products, you have the the beer and wine type products and the snacks and the sodas and the energy drinks. And I think those have helped the convenience store continue to bring foot traffic in the store. But a lot of them are trying to go beyond those products and get more into, I want to go into the store type of mentality from their customer base. That's been probably the biggest, most current challenge with the convenience store was how do I get the, how do I convert the visit at the gas pump into a visit inside my store? And it's important to the convenience store because currently about 50% of a convenience store's profitability comes from what we call inside sales. So they, about 50% of their, their profitability comes at the gas pump. And that's very, can be very market sensitive depending on, you know, how urban or rural their, their market is. Gas is a very commoditized item, very price-sensitive item. And that can be half of their profit, and, but the other half comes from inside the store. So there is a need and a want and a desire for these entrepreneurs and, and operators to move that traffic from the gas pump into their facility. So gas is actually sometimes not the primary sort of profit maker or half, as you mentioned, but really getting into the store is an important part for that business model. Gas has made a comeback a little bit in the profit dynamic. And, and so, like today, it can be, I believe, 
anywhere from 8 to 14% type margin that they might be able to make on gas. There was a time where gas was ultra-sensitive, and they were lucky to make a nickel a gallon, which, you know, with the infrastructure they put in and things like that, that cannot always be a profitable <laughs> money-making venture or investment. And so then, then it was really important to get the customer into the store because that's where they would make their money. And some convenience store owners in the past would use the gas as the attraction and know they weren't making much on it and really try to dial in what they were doing in the store. Now, the fuel companies, and I don't know that the, all the details, but the fuel companies really support a lot of the, the canopies, the marketing, the pump construction, and provide the, the financial resources for the operators to put those in. So that helps in their ROI calculation as well. Got it. How about ownership? Do most of these convenience stores that are also gas stations, are they owned by these entrepreneurs? Are they owned by oil companies? Like who are they typically owned by? It can be a mix. And we've seen it change over the years and change back. It's been interesting. Mm -hmm. In the states that we service, Washington, Oregon, Northern California, parts of Idaho, it's a lot of entrepreneurs. It might be a family business in and of itself that owns a convenience store gas station, or they might own three or four. You know, we do a lot of some regional players that might own 10. We have some nice chains that are regional chains that own 30 in a particular area. You get outside of those states, and there are some states where it's pretty much big chains that are the only opportunity. I don't have enough wherewithal to wherewithal in that or knowledge to, to know why, but that's just what we see in the marketplace. So they can be dominated by just change in a geographic region. In our area, it's a lot of independent business owners, and they may have multiple numbers of stations. And then you will have, have stations that are owned or financed by the, by the oil companies, and that may be a complete chain and the oil company owns the whole thing, or they might own the land, own the store, own the pumps, but they'll lease the store to an operator who basically just lives on the, what they can get on the in-store sales. We've seen that model out in the marketplace. Oil distributors will often own chains. You know, they either acquire them in the marketplace through, you know, opportunities recovering debt and things like that. And then they end up with seven, eight, 10, 12, whatever stores. And so sometimes the oil distribution companies will own stores. And then obviously that's a good way for them to distribute their product and then also take advantage of the retail space as well. I want to comment on the current challenges facing gas stations today. And I want to do it in the, under the lens or in the lens of understanding where you know fuels and vehicles what i call transport energy is really going around the world i think one of the big issues that gas stations fuel retailers are facing is what kinds of fuels will there be in a world that is really beginning to push more strongly and strategically towards decarbonization what does that look like? So that might mean a revisiting of fuels that they offer today. 
you know, like gasoline and diesel. It might mean offering other alternative fuels. So electrification or electric, electric vehicle charging is one option, but alternative, other alternative fuels are options as well. And then, you know, there may be bio-based versions of gasoline and diesel that they offer. So it, it's a brave new world out there for fuel retailers to try and anticipate what the trends are, you know, and where policy is going in different countries. So in Europe, there's much more of a strong consensus and national and even supranational vision through the, the European Union, European Commission about what transport energies should look like in the coming year. So it's a lot of electric vehicles in light duty uh, vehicles, cars, you know, sport utility vehicles and the like. So there's a lot of emphasis on electric vehicle charging, offering that and then other fuels as well, bio-based alternatives such as hydro-treated vegetable oil, which is, you know, chemically indistinct from diesel. So it'll be like fuels like that. But that's going to be driven by very strong policies that are in place in Europe. But we don't really have that here in the United States, which is where I'm based. You know, we don't have a strong national vision. We don't have strong national policies. We have 50 states that are basically moving at different rates and speeds. Some states are doing a lot on fuels issues, such as California, which has implemented a low carbon fuel standard, which allows, you know, which requires fuels that are offered to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and those are measured and you can earn credits and you can sell credits and there's a whole regulatory regime around that. And then you have other states that really it's kind of business as usual. They're not really moving very quickly in terms of developing regulations. So we don't have a strong national vision and we have 50 states kind of doing different things when it comes to fuels. And I think that's really challenging for fuel retailers around the country and increasingly so around the world. That was Tammy Klein, founder and CEO at Transport Energy Strategies. Just by way of an intro, she's an expert on conventional biofuels and alternative fuels markets and policy issues. She's worked with clients in the auto and oil industries, as well as governments and NGOs, and helps them understand current and future fuels trends. We'll now hear from Jeff Leonard, who's been a lead spokesperson for convenience stores, which actually sell most of the gas. He often covers the topic of motor fuel sales, trends, and new products and innovations in this space. Hi, I'm Jeff Leonard, Vice President of Strategic Industry Initiatives for the National Association of Convenience Stores, otherwise known as NACS. Now, when you look at what's going on with gas stations and what are the biggest challenges they face, you could probably break things down to three big challenges. Number one is a fight for a limited customer base. Where do you get your sales, particularly as big boxes, hypermarkets, you know, the Walmarts, the Costcos and grocery stores continue to carve out space for fueling? So that's the one big challenge in terms of the fight for a limited customer base. Second challenge that retailers face, that gas stations face, is uncertainties related to supply. And that is a continual challenge. That is not a new challenge. Some of that relates to environmental regulations that were passed at the turn of this century. 
which require boutique fuels required in different areas of the country. What that does is it creates pinch points in the spring leading up to the summer drive season. Usually the system works its way through right about this time, right about mid-May, but in a given year, it can create some real challenges with the refining infrastructure, with the retail infrastructure, with the fuels distribution infrastructure, which can complicate things, particularly when there's some sort of stress to the system. And in the past years, that can be things like what we saw last year with the driver shortage and the continuing driver shortage, where it's just been more of a challenge to get different fuels where they need to be. We also saw the challenges this time last year with the the colonial pipeline disruption. And just that slight disruption for a few days, which lasted, I believe, about three days, was a significant challenge to the system. And you saw customers just just react by buying fuel in bulk, sometimes filling up garbage cans or, or second cars, third cars, and the system's not equipped for that. So anything that puts stress on the system can really create some imbalances and other stresses on the system, of course, are any sort of natural disasters, whether it's uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, flooding, anything that affects production or refining, because retailing, fuel retailing is the last step in that process. So they're dependent upon a lot of things going right before they are selling it to the customer. The third thing that is a challenge for gas stations, for fuel retailers, is uncertainty related to what the future of energy is. What will they be selling at the pump or at the nozzle? Public opinion surveys say we want charging at gas stations, at traditional places where we see fueling. However, for the gas station, they need to make determinations. Where do you put that fueling? What do you need to do now? What do you need to wait on to see how it might play out? I really want to spend bulk of our time focusing on the future of gas stations, but what about the, you know, some of the recent events that have happened and we've had the pandemic, you know, for for a couple of years sort of impacting how many how much people are getting outside, kind of driving outside. Recently, the war in Ukraine and how that sort of disrupted the you know supply chain and availability of gas seems like gas prices are just high everywhere. I've seen a swing from like 99 cents in some states to like, you know, now like five bucks consistently, like in, in many states. So tell us more about some of these, you know, how what you saw from the pandemic and also recently with the, the war happening. I think the with the pandemic, obviously people not being out and about affects any retail business, yeah, it, it affected the convenience stores definitely. One thing that that helped with the convenience store is people would still want things or need things, and they may not make as long of a trip, and they may run to their corner store to get those items during the pandemic. So during the the pandemic, after the initial full scale lockdown that we all participated in, as you started to be able to travel with certain certification paperwork, you know, emergency or necessities, and society started to move about again, the convenience store industry had a nice growth spurt, actually, 
because I think people were staying out of the bigger stores. They were buying the, the little things they needed to get by. And that helped that industry during that time. Now we've seen since that kind of level back out. But I would say that during the pandemic, the convenience store industry has actually seen maybe about a nice 5%, 6% growth, which has been good. As far as fuel prices, the, the biggest threat to fuel prices to the convenience store is, is obviously as price goes up, sometimes demand can also go down. Now, gasoline is one of those commodities that a lot of people need, but they can scale back. And so you'll see demand go down. And also you'll see people spending more of their their expendable income to fill up their car and they're maybe not going into the store for a snack or something that they desire or that extra energy drink or you know something out of the food case or candy bar you know and so they'll be making other decisions with their dollars and that can affect the inside store sales haven't seen a, a ton of that reflected in our growth numbers yet but that's generally the shift you'll see in society when gas prices get really high like that. When you look at the effects of the pandemic and the invasion of Ukraine, they really are striking at two different elements of the fueling infrastructure. One is related to supply and one is related to demand. So let's just look at the demand first, and that's all related to the pandemic. When the pandemic struck in May 2020, the impact was immediate. People just hunkered down. They didn't go to work. They didn't run errands. They didn't go out to restaurants or shows or sporting events or anything like that. So the the impact on fuel demand was significant. It was 40% overall, but many markets, it was much more significant than that. 50%, 60%, 70% reduction in demand over a multi-week period in, in mid-2020. Now that demand has largely come back, but it hasn't come back fully. It came back, there was still a double digit deficit at the end of 2020 compared to 2019. And that deficit tightened a little bit in 2021, but it's not all the way back. And it's not all the way back because there are still plenty of people who are working at home. You can see in the US, particularly with government workers, that now that they're required to come in a day or two a week, you're seeing more traffic, but you're really seeing different kinds of traffic. You're seeing traffic patterns. Yes, there's a typical morning commute, but we're also seeing at convenience stores that that morning commute, there aren't as many, and they may not be coming inside for fuel in the morning. They may be getting it at a different time, and they may not be getting coffee or something else that they used to get in that morning rush hour. Now, for those who are either out of the workforce because they retired or don't feel like working or are working from home, we're seeing a different traffic pattern emerge. We're seeing people who are coming in still filling up in the morning, but maybe filling up at 11 or 11.30 when they finally find that it's just a good time to get out of the house and, and meet people and, and you know, have normal human conversations instead of talking to a box for several hours on end. So that's what the pandemic has done related to demand. Now, with Ukraine, that is all supply related. 
Russia is one of the top three producers of fuel. And I think uh, most people have heard on the news the, the, how much oil Russia produces. But it also refines product. And the type of fuel that Russia produces also has an impact on how it's refined because not all oil is equal. Some oil is heavier than other oil, whether it's, you look at the tickers that look at different types of oil. There's WTI, which is West Texas Intermediate. There's Brent, which comes out of the North Sea. There's heavier fuel that comes out of Russia and formerly with Venezuela, although that looks like it's turning around. And refineries are optimized to produce or take in different types of fuel. So when fuel stops coming from Russia to other countries, it has a bigger impact on just the number. It has an impact on where refineries need to be optimized. And, and one of the things we're seeing right now is refineries aren't optimized in the U.S. and around the world. And, and Russia also had refineries. So that's having a bigger impact than just the oil price that you see every day. It's really having an impact that's having a striking, it's affecting the refining ability around the world. And that's probably having as big a impact on prices as oil itself. So that's something to watch over the next couple of months. It's not just the price of oil, it's the ability to refine that oil. Let's shift and talk more about the future because there's so much, so many interesting things to talk about there. I think it's good to kind of understand the, the baseline. As we look to the future, if we just start with the, the high level question, you know, what, what do gas stations look like 20 to 30 years from now? I think that the gas station for the future, you know, it, it's possible in 30 years that it doesn't sell gas. I mean, I don't, there's obviously a lot of things that have to change in technology. I also think that in, in our industry, the gas station has had to adapt over the years already. I mean, it's, a gas station started out as a service station. You got fuel there, you got your car repaired. And corner grocers were a little bit different altogether. Delicatessens, delis, things like that. As cars became more reliable, needed less service, and that changed over time, you saw a lot of gas stations adopt food, candy, snacks, packaged goods sales. And they made that adjustment. And that's kind of was the birth of the convenience store concept that we know today. So I think what that indicates is the real estate and their position in their communities is important. And I think that can be leveraged for the future to continue to evolve themselves. And, and so the challenge will be how does that owner of that location maximize their profitability out of that location? So how do I become more impactful with the community and gas becomes just a convenience I offer instead of a draw? Because gasoline could in 30 years you know, 30 years is a long time. <laughs> in 30 years, gasoline could very much be something that a hobbyist goes and buys for certain vehicles that are more recreational than naturally used for commuting. And so it could be just a convenience that's added. You know, I definitely kind of see the gas pumps maybe being less dominant as part of the footprint of the real estate and more that 
that space being utilized to draw people in to the store. You know, I always like to think of it like a community hub. You know, how, how does that convenience store become a community hub? You know, can it offer like UPS shipping services? Can it offer restaurant quality food that can be consumed on site or, or taken home to eat you with know, different varieties? You know, do you walk into a convenience store in 30 years and it's not any more a convenience store as much as it is a place to grab some food, do some business, pick up something you might need or to hang out with your friends and, and community members in, in the neighborhood over a beer or over some espresso. You know, it could really change how it's serving their community. I still think in the travel patterns, you know, there's still, I think, going to be a level of commuting. But I think in the main travel patterns, those opportunities are probably going to have to morph more into that travel rest, kind of like an advanced rest stop almost, not not a rest stop, but a, a travel plaza that you that you pull into, regardless of of how your how your momentum of your vehicle is being provided, but a place where you want to stop and take a break because you've been on the road for four hours. So as we think to the future, again, there's there will be an evolution. There will be an evolution needed. I, it's interesting to think about how fast that will change. You know, Boston Consulting Group said that the the new mobility and you know autonomous movement the electric vehicles they said they might make fuel retail gas stations unprofitable by 2035 as it currently operates yeah right but like how fast you know tell us more about how fast do you think you know the electric vehicle electrification sort of autonomous vehicle movement is is going to happen what are your thoughts on that i think that personally my my thoughts on that are I think it's going to be a combination of things between capacity and charging time. I, I really think those might be the drivers of the tipping point. And so in a theoretical world, if I can buy the equivalent electric vehicle, so if I'm looking at a Honda, Honda Accord or Toyota Camry, and I could buy the same size vehicle at the same price within plus or minus, you know, 5% call it, and my electric vehicle has a 500 plus range and charges in 15 minutes or less. I think that's going to be tremendous pressure on the gasoline engine because I believe the ease of ownership and the long-term maintenance of an electric vehicle, you know, barring just the environmental push on it. But I think those every day how I live with this vehicle is simpler and easier with an electric vehicle. And I think that even is part of fueling the vehicle as well. You know, in this in Washington, any new convenience store gas station has to provide at least one electric vehicle station charging station in their build. It's a requirement. Now there's grants that are supplied to help with that, but the challenges are there's power constraints. To get the necessary wattage to have six charging stations, a lot of those pieces of property don't have the infrastructure to the property to provide that charging. And so they might be able to do one or two or three, and that might be all they can do. But I think that it's very possible with EVs, you may not charge at a, where you, the same spot that you gas up your car. So I could see, see when the parameters of value exceed the gasoline engine or are at least equal and the ownerships remain simple, more simple than the gasoline engine. I could see a significant shift in my mind over a course of three to four years. And why I have that opinion 
is I think the big companies are already adjusting the big automakers. So they will be able to, to shift with that and be able to, to satisfy the supply, to help with satisfying the supply. I also see, you know, it wasn't that long ago that cars became much more reliable and interest rates got, got very attractive. I don't remember the timeline exactly, but it would be a cool for someone with more statistical ability to take a look at. But we turned over new cars in the marketplace across different income levels in like a two to three year period. Oh, wow. You know, everyone was buying new cars. New cars became the thing to buy. And they had all different price ranges, all different models. And I use everyone lightly, of course, because they're still, but a bulk of the population was turning over new cars because it was made financially feasible to buy a car. The cars were much better than what was previous, and people didn't hang on to their cars as long. We might be upgrading like we upgrade our, our smartphones. I think so. Are you seeing any trends on the infrastructure to support EVs and any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's going to also be a function of what does the EV 10 years from now or eight years from now need as far as the infrastructure to keep up. I mean, current battery technology requires a certain amount of wattage to charge in a certain amount of time. I'm not schooled or know enough about those details, but just on the surface, what does the battery technology that's around the corner do? Does that charge with less energy? Does that charge quicker so that more cars can charge in less amount of time? Does that have that extended range? Is it lighter with an extended range so that, you know, that you've even free up more space, for example, inside the vehicle like you're talking about? And do the face of vehicles themselves change? Right? right now, it's a very personal experience and it's something I enjoy. I mean, I love going on road trips and and hitting the road. And, you know, I have a Jeep and I like taking the doors off and all that stuff and being out in the wind. And so there's a, that's part of the experience, but do we get more comfortable with the more of a community type thing? And because of the quietness of EVs and some of the self-driving that's being being used in the electronic vehicles, do they become more communal in and of themselves? Are you ride sharing more? Do you not own a car? Do you lease, a, lease into a car? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the future is so wide open with this, but I think what happens generally is is something gets very appealing very quickly and the market will adjust. Even the automobile itself, if you look at horses to automobiles, like how quickly that happened, it was actually pretty quickly. And it was like over a period of decade, major cities could be completely revolutionized. And there was no infrastructure for the automobile. Right. And somehow as a society, we figured it out. I know that's a horrible answer because there's no nothing <laughs> to stand on technically there, but it's just a faith in the in our humanness to figure those problems out for the greater good of society. And we tend to do that. You know, we tend to do that. Yeah. And I think your your point about how the home is the range of the batteries, right? Kind of changes the game. The the idea that you're charging at home kind of changes the game. It's anticipating what those changes are going to be, you know, and it's uncertainties in, in the market, anticipating those. Are consumers going to flock more towards electric vehicles, for example? Should they offer charging? Well, you know, the first experiments in doing that, you know, were really not great. There weren't a lot of vehicles when fuel retailers first started offering charging, you know, around 10 years ago. There were all kinds of problems with the equipment. There was a lot of underutilization. 
you know, there were just lots and lots of, of problems. And so some fuel retailers really got burned and there was a great reluctance to kind of, you know, even today, there's sort of lingering reluctance about, you know, when and whether to get in the ring and offer and offer charging. You know, does it make sense? Is there a return on investment? Things like that. And then you see other fuel retailers that are really trying to to take that risk and offer charging, you know, in the hopes that consumers will, you know, increasingly buy electric vehicles and need public charging. So that's happening, you know, everywhere in Canada and the U.S. and in parts of Europe. And it's really there's sort of this uncertainty. In the U.S., there's policy uncertainty, less so in Europe, and there's uncertainty about new technologies like electric vehicle charging. Will consumers buy them? You know, I think we know now at this point, we know that electric vehicles are coming, so it's really not a matter of if, especially given the more than $500 billion that the auto industry is investing. It's really going to be a matter of when and how. I think aspirationally, people feel because of all these reports, the news reports, because of the commercials, because of all the the news related to EVs, that they're more prevalent than they are. And I think a perfect example is in the survey, one of the questions we asked, and, and we looked at the median number, which is the middle number. We didn't want to look at the mean number, which can be inflated or reduced by people who say zero or a hundred or something like that, where you get two extremes. The median's the middle number out of every survey submission. And the first question we asked is, what percent of new vehicles on the road that were purchased last year were EVs? 20% was the median answer, according to US drivers. They thought that one in five cars sold last year was an EV. And in reality, it was about 3%. A couple percent more were hybrids, but still not in double digits in terms of EVs. And and consumers at a minimum were off by a factor of two. And then we asked a second question. What percentage of vehicles on the road right now are EVs? And the median number for that was 15%. They thought that 15% of all vehicles on the road are EVs. And the correct answer to that is less than 1%. And just a little backup in terms of information, there are about 400,000, little less than 400,000 EVs sold last year out of the 14 million or so vehicles sold last year. There are about 270 million vehicles that are registered in the United States. So let's just presume that by some magic, production was ramped up in every vehicle sold last year and the next nine years, assuming 14 million cars sold, although it's a little lower because of the pandemic, but let's just assume that. If over the next 10 years, every car sold is an EV, that means in 10 years, EVs will have about a 50% market share, which means that 50% of vehicles will not be EVs. And when you look at the numbers, that doesn't feel realistic at all that every car sold in America is going to be an EV. Like you said, Washington State, if they're, you know, gas stations are integrating some of these charge points. I think I read that the White House is investing like $5 billion to try to support, you know, 500,000 public charges across the country. But you also have 
Teslas, Rivians, yep. you know, and even these car companies investing in some of their own infrastructure. It seems like that's been sort of that near-term sort of infrastructure pin because we haven't had the range. But it could all be for, hey, just long-term. It could just be for those longer trips that we don't take very often if battery range really goes really high. And it's kind of solve itself. Do you think so, though, Jeff, that there's a community aspect that is just kind of part of what we want to be is, is people? Where I'm going with that is, is I don't think that the current gas station or convenience store is going to go away. I think they're going to evolve and offer the services that meet their customer base. And I still think one of the services is going to be that charging. I just don't think it's going to be as needed as a gas pump. It's going to be more of a want to. Look how many of us can make great coffee in our home. You know, we can, but do we? Some do, some don't. Some of us like to go to the coffee stand. Some of us even like to go inside and say hello to people and see people, especially, you know, pre-pandemic and like rolling out of this thing too, where we've been kind of bottled up a bit. Some of us like to go through the drive through espresso stand to get our coffee you know, and having some background in the coffee industry, me personally, I can make a better coffee at home than I can get at stand. But I like saying hello. And there's a guy I see every morning across the window that I say hi to that we went to high school together. And so you get that type of connection point. So I think this, this evolving of the convenience store and what our, what our operators are doing in the market to position themselves to be ready for this is phenomenal as they've shifted and start and start to shift, but creating those communal hubs and offering that electronic charging, that EV charging is a option. It's just another way to pull people into this community center. It's gonna be a pull versus a push, you know? It's kind of like right now there's a need. You know, I need to stop and fill up my car. And it's probably coupled with some wants as well. Like I want a cup of coffee or whatnot. And we all need to go to the bathroom. You know, no matter what, like if we're traveling, that is a draw too, right? Exactly. That's not going to happen inside the vehicle. Nope. Nope. I don't know. Elon Musk might be working on that. Who knows? (laughs) But no, the handsome down. People are very aspirational when they're thinking about what EVs have for the future, but it's going to be a long time before we get there and gas stations will be around. Now, they may not sell as much gas. They may do more charging. There may be other types of fuels involved, but the gas station will be there to provide convenient fueling or energy consumption for whatever they need. And and the typical fueling is two to three minutes, or I'm sorry, three to four minutes. I would imagine as technology advances that you're not going to be looking at charge times that are significantly higher than that if EV charging is to take off outside of the home. And that might be that people are looking at not complete charges. They may, I think the presumption when EVs came in is people would want to charge from 0% or 1% to 100%. Now that takes a long time. I think as time has gone on, people have looked at EVs much the way they've looked at cell phones. And you see the way people with cell phones look at charging is, I'm on the road, I'm at 40%, I'd love to be at 60%. So when I stop in this place and quickly get something to eat, I'm gonna charge for a couple minutes. So possibly some model that we might see with EVs that people look for partial charging 
They don't want to get to that dreaded below 20% where the percentage turns red and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, I got to do something in a hurry. So gas stations will be around. EVs will be around too. And there's no forecast that I've seen that indicates anything different over the next two or three decades. So I think, you know, in terms of looking at the future of the gas station, it's going to encompass sort of all of these things. And I think it's going to be about designing an aesthetically pleasing, nice place, attractive for people to come and sit and either, you know, fill up or wait for their car to charge because even in the in the fast charging, you're waiting 20 or 30 minutes. And I, th I think fuel retailers are already responding to that. You see, you know, food offerings, you know, people really love some of the offerings that some of the fuel retailers are doing. It's not just, you know, these questionable <laughs> snacks and sandwiches, you're not really sure. It's like really first class food offerings, really nice seating areas, Wi-Fi services like ATMs and others. You know, those things are already beginning to proliferate. Few retailers around the world are beginning to offer that. And then they'll just sort of be like this other dimension to sort of keep people and bring people in the, in the store, you know, while they're waiting, for example, for their vehicle to be charged. So I think that's where we're going. One of the things I've been thinking about is it seems like some countries like Norway, for example, are, are going a little faster than others mm -hmm. on electric and hybrid. And I think it could be interesting to see what happens to the gas stations there. Because I heard like maybe even as much as 90% of new cars are electric or hybrid. So I'm not aware of any trends that are happening there for gas stations, but I think that could be an early sort of sign of, of some of the evolution we might see. Well, you look at Europe's an interesting model, Japan's an interesting model, and there's other places around the world. And then you look at our market and our gas station, our convenience store, like what part of that store today could be distributed to the consumer, how you see it in Europe and Japan, like a vending machine, like some of the technology that's that's in place in other industries today where that goods to, to person technology. Like, can I walk into a convenience store and the footprint of that that store is now about that community service center. And I go to a couple panels in the walls in the store, and it's in effect a fancy vending machine. I say, hey, I need some toothpaste, and I want, you know, I don't know what else, some wet wipes for my car. And it just vends them out to me. But the rest of the store is all about that experience with the community, food, and maybe whatever services we don't see today. What about the trends in food? You know, you guys supply gas stations with the bulk of what kind of shows up in their store. And I've noticed you personally are like on, you have tons of energy, seem really healthy. Like, is there any trend towards, you know, more healthy food in gas stations as well? Yes, it's been a topic of conversation probably for a decade. And I think we're reaching a point in our society that people are, are being more health conscious. I mean, we, we probably have never been more health conscious as a society in ever in the United States as far as working out and whatnot. But I think what we're learning is that our inputs are important. What we eat is important. That working out and staying fit and staying healthy is, is vital. Being active is vital, both mentally and for your physical health, I believe. 
this is all my personal thoughts too, Jeff. So I don't it's relevant. Thank have you. any like technical experience here or anything. But what we eat is is very important to how we feel, I believe, and to our overall health as well. Getting up there in age, I mean, I'm 51 and I have peers that are very physically fit. I was not and probably still not where I need to be, but they were having some of the same health concerns I was having. And it wasn't because they weren't more dedicated to their health because they were, but what they were eating and putting in their body, regardless of how they burned it and and what they did with those calories to be physically fit was doing damage to their internally. And so I think there is going to be more of a push to make what's been a decades long or more mission, really give it the traction and grip to really start to offer more of those items in that marketplace. So Harbor Foods Group, you know, we have Harbor Wholesale, which services the gas station convenience store, quick serve restaurant market. And we also have a company called Harbor Food Service that is what you would call a broadline food service company. And it services restaurants from quick serve all the way to your fanciest of fancy restaurants and a variety of menus. And that's been a real fun, invigorating business as well when we talk about food. And why that's important to us as a family business is all that we talked about, the evolution of the convenience store, is to learn more about the food market so that we can better position our convenience store customers to be those community centers and offer high quality food. And also to take what we learn in the convenience store distribution game, which is very much about efficiency, is very much about being on time and consistency and apply that to the food service market and some of the technologies for efficiency we use in the convenience store game, apply that to the food service market so we can better the experience of the restaurants. We really think we're positioned uniquely to provide win-win to the market segments for both these customer bases. And we're super excited about that. Where that helps us in the convenience store, what we've seen is as our operators have developed more what we would call food service offerings in their stores, so whether it's a deli case or whether it's some grab-and-go foods, or whether they're making things on site, what used to be our third or fourth most profitable segment in that market segment has gone to number one. And so it's, it's really, the demand is there, and if it's executed appropriately, people appreciate it. You know, the people appreciate it. And that allows for more healthy offerings as well. The fueling industry is always evolving, and it's going to continue to evolve. But the thing is, change takes time. And if you look at the history of fueling, everything that's introduced that is a significant enhancement of fueling has taken decades to take hold, not days, months, or years, but decades. For instance, you look at self-serve, which started, you could argue that it was in the 19. 40s in some places, but the technology really was introduced in 1964 that allowed cars to, or allowed people to fill up their cars, save a couple cents a gallon. And it took the rest of that decade to even get a smattering of stations to take advantage of it. In fact, it was the first two oil crises of the 70s that allowed various states to to relax their restrictions on self-serve. 
and where you finally saw people who would say, yeah, you know, I'll pump my own gas, I'll change my behavior to save a couple cents a gallon. But the move from full serve to self-serve was at least 20 years in the making, if not 30 years in the making. Another thing you look at things like pay at the pump, which was started in the mid to early 80s and took well over a decade to really be embraced. People still continue to go inside the store well into the 2000s. So when you look at these type of advancements, it takes years and years and years to change behavior. And the success of the future will depend upon how do you tell that story to customers. When you look at how a couple marketing axioms is if you have something that's just basically a stair step enhancement what you want to do is you want to paint it as revolutionary you want to make it seem as amazing as possible and not just a you know a basic change in in something that people are familiar with when you're trying to tell somebody about something that's revolutionary you want to make it sound like something they already do so when you look at the next generation of fueling or charging or whatever it is the key to get there is to tell people it's really not that different than what they do now that will encourage adoption that'll move things along quicker by telling people, hey, you know, it's not that difficult. It's something that you're very accustomed to. So that's, it's about marketing as much as it is about technology and a lot of other things. What's changing is, you know, that, that fuel retailers may have to more broadly consider the types of fuels that they offer, bio-based gasoline, bio-based diesels, renewable natural gases, if there are natural gas vehicles out there, electric vehicle charging, maybe also in the future hydrogen. So it's really beginning to plan for that and anticipate and try to anticipate from that. And it's really going to require knowing your consumer and your, you know, in the various markets that are being served and really knowing them them deeply and really watching what's happening on the policy front and what the, what the trends are and, and really beginning to prepare accordingly. What advice would you have for gas station owners? Given how much change is ahead, what advice would you have for them? I think for the gas station owners is to have faith in their ability as the entrepreneurs in their community. They've shown over the years to adapt to all sorts of challenges and changes to better themselves and better how they serve their communities. And I have a ton of optimism that though challenges may be coming 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road, that they have the unique ability to adjust to those and provide something that's even better for the community than what's there today. And we see it. We see it in little steps here and there, and we've seen it over time in different challenges that that market has adapted to. I think these people are the true entrepreneurs in their community, and they can be the true revolutionaries or the in their communities of, of how they serve them, and they just continue to do that. So I think I have a lot of faith in their ability. That's really insightful as we think about their opportunity to improve the experience and also survive and grow out of it in a stronger way. You know, often great things come out of our hardest 
moments or change. And I really believe that it takes those challenges, those struggles to have the creativity to innovate into the future. You know, I think throughout history, a lot of the innovations have come from severe challenges and struggles people have gone through or industries have gone through to reinvent themselves. Thank you for all that wisdom and this notion of your journey and also that adaptation. You know, this goes back to our original topic, the future of gas stations, how they need they adapted over time and will need to continue to adapt drastically. But to bring that back to our relationships and thinking about how if we're committed to a good experience with each other, you know, how we need to how we need to also adapt and learn together and communicate and have clear expectations. Those are kind of my key takeaways from your wisdom. So thank you, Scott, for being with us and for sharing the depth of your experience, your your foresight, your insight into the future. Really impressed with your your thinking and also the legacy that you're leaving and continue to leave in, in this business that, that started with your, your great-grandfather. Impressive. And uh, loved having you here. Thank you so much. And I, I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed it also. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. The Future of Podcast is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for the future of an Apple podcast, Spotify, Google podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening.